Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Happy Hour History. I'm your host, Professor Natalie Harpin. I don't think I'm going to be able to talk about everything related to this episode today because I don't usually like to make them too long and there's a lot of information, but I did want to talk about Chinese coolie labor in the early 19th century into the late 19th century. And I wanted to talk about this because I have talked about, actually, I don't think I've done like a podcast about the transatlantic slave trade. So I'll probably look into that because I mean, like I do it for class, but I don't think I've ever done it in a podcast form. But I, I brought that up because most of the time we only think about forced labor in the form of like indigenous people who were forced into like the encomienda system in Latin America, where they were forced to do the labor of the Spanish who had colonized, even though they were not technically like enslaved, right? The way we think about enslavement. Then of course the transatlantic slave trade, which is the enslavement of different groups of continental Africans for the purpose of building up the new world and creating the economies that still thrive to this day. And, but we don't usually think about like imported Asian labor as a part of that. And so I wanted to talk a little bit first about, you know, coolie labor in general, and then go into a little bit more specifics with the Chinese experience in Cuba. So coolie labor was touted by the English and then the Americans as well and the Spanish actually as sort of the the new way of the new wave of forced labor in the abolitionist time period so when it comes to and I guess I guess maybe I should have talked about this first but I'll go briefly over it um when it comes to abolition of enslaved Africans in the new world the English, the Spanish, the Portuguese, right? There were resistance movements that were happening, that had been happening for centuries. And resistance movements, meaning people who were fighting for their freedom, fighting for their abolition, fighting for their emancipation. And so many of these colonizing forces were like, okay, we are... We recognize that we have large numbers of enslaved Africans. They make up most of the population of Latin America and the Caribbean. We can't really keep doing this much longer. And the resistance fighting is becoming a big scare for them. So I don't know if you heard lady just like groaning because she's like right next to my shoulder. But um, so their thought was, well, what's next? Right. Because, of course, they have positioned themselves, they, comma, the Europeans, the colonizers, they have positioned themselves as the peak of intellectual ability, physical ability, mental capacity, you know, beauty, everything, right? They've positioned themselves at the top. So if they were to do their own labor, they believe that that is beneath them, right? That the agricultural labor is beneath them, that the mining work is beneath them. And they have created a whole system of like racial castes, which I have talked about in the diaspora series that I did um, Words Mean Things parts one through four so far. They have created a system in which work like hard labor is given to the non-white folks. 
So the indigenous descended folks and the black descended folks. And that is why even today within a lot of these systems in this hemisphere, so in English or former English colonies in, you know, American, well, the American colony, which became the United States in the Spanish colonies, there is still very much discrimination aimed at black and indigenous descended peoples from those countries and who were part of that colonization from these um, European groups, which is why a lot of times people use like the term BIPOC, right? B-I-P-O-C, black and indigenous people of color. They're usually at the very bottom of the social caste. So with that being said, these colonizing forces understand that, you know, the time is near the end when it comes to using enslaved African chattel labor. So a system in which these people cannot escape slavery, they actually, of course, I just keep like having these thoughts on top of thoughts. But in the second wave, which is the most popular wave of transatlantic slavery from like 1650 into the late 1800s in this hemisphere, the Western hemisphere, they didn't allow the enslaved to purchase their freedom anymore. So slavery is an inescapable reality for these people. It is inheritable by their children that they birth, even if they have a father who was free and a mother who was enslaved, even if they are, you know, mixed race. So it is a very clear, ordered, regimented, heavily regulated system. And they're deciding what is going to be the next phase of that, because we this is not a sustainable model as we get into the 19th century. And so one of their proposals of this was to import labor from other non-white groups to the colonies to do that same work and to have a system that is legally different, but in a lot of ways socially is revered as the same. And so coolie laborers were people, and I know that can be, it can be a controversial term, but it is the historic term. So coolie laborers are the people who were brought in. A lot of them were from India and a lot of them were from China and they are brought in to do the labor. Only they're not legally considered slaves. Now, they are and they're not legally considered slaves and you're like well how can they be doing the labor they're doing the same work with their what do you mean they're not slaves they're not slaves because the purchase of like they were being purchased but they as a person weren't being purchased like with the enslavement of africans their labor was being purchased so it was considered like the purchasing of a contract so it's kind of like indentured servitude just I know more Americans are familiar with with indentured servitude. So you're buying the contract for this person's labor for a period of time. And there are a lot of rules that um, benefit, of course, you as the purchaser of that contract and does not help them. They right the laborers in this. And so the coolie labor trade did start in around the 1830s and it continued through the 18. 70s um at least in cuba for example but it is something that was brought into the united states as well into the american south with regard to okay now the u.s had um abolition in 1865 so they brought in coolie laborers many of them from india but some of them from china also to do work in the american south and to do the same agricultural work okay because as I've talked about before on the podcast, 
they as considered legally not considered white people are still subject to do this type of hard labor are still expected to be able to do that type of hard labor and the justification is also there that they are as non-white people mentally inferior etc so they actually don't get paid a very high wage at all and when they are in these contracts they constantly have to worry about the same thing indentured servants did in the colonial united states they had to worry about the contract being extended for dumb reasons they had to worry about um, being beaten or humiliated um, much of the same type of thing with regard to like what their what the social scene was during their time of labor so Cuba is what I was going to be talking about specifically this podcast, but they were producing about 14% of the world's sugar supply by 1820. And so by the time we get to the 1840s, Cuba is the number one producer of sugar and surpassed Jamaica. So they are in a unique position because if they're going to end the enforced enslavement of African descended peoples, they still very much want to keep up production because they're making a lot of money in cultivating sugar. We know that Haiti had had a revolution in the early 1800s and they were, they had an embargo placed on them. So nobody would purchase Haitian sugar anyway. And that's a whole separate episode with regard to how that was largely rooted in racism because the Haitian revolution had a lot of the same principles as the American revolution, but we didn't have embargoes placed on us that would affect our economy going forward or else we may not have even had um, chattel slavery in this country. But I'll talk about that at another time. But it is important to note, it's actually interesting that by the time we get to 1870, because of the importation of coolie laborers from China, as well as people who were still enslaved because Cuba did not eradicate slavery until the 1880s, Cuba produced 42% of the world's sugar supply. So that was a huge market share. So there were many ports that served as um, centers where laborers would be contracted. I had read a book, part of it, called Coolie Woman, and I can't pronounce the woman's name. I'm not going to try it, but the title of the book is Coolie Woman. I don't want to like butcher it on audio. And she was discussing how in India that they would use these methods to try to recruit people, but they had to have so many women on the ships and that a lot of the women who did end up, you know, choosing to contract for labor were people who were dealing with a lot of like sexism within their society and being taken advantage of if they were had been um, made widows and things like that. Um, when it comes to China, there's also some evidence of people who were sold into it because they had been in rebellious wars, right, with, um, within China and different ethnic groups. So that's really interesting, too. Now, there had been, on the part of Cuba, there had been an attempt to import European um, indentured labor, right? So sort of like um, coolies that would have been from, like, Spain, Ireland, Germany. And that didn't really go over that well, it's very interesting that, I mean, they call, they didn't call them coolies. They called them braceros. So just like, um, workers and those people generally fled the plantations. They would be paid. So it's not as if they were, they didn't have to deal with as harsh of punishments and the same humiliations, but generally speaking, 
they were given a wage, but many of them did flee to try to like go get work in different parts of towns as like artisans. And it appears that they were paid about nine pesos a month and they had food rations that, you know, were substandard as generally they are, but that was not seen as like a lucrative replacement as they're beginning to think about how are we going to replace this, um, these laborers and where we're getting the labor from. So turning to Chinese indentured labor, it's very interesting too. Sometimes when you look at the records, these people are considered colonos asiaticos, which is Asian colonists. And at other times, I mean, that's, I think like the classification, sometimes they are racially noted as white But again, that's something that's just happening legally. Sometimes they are noted as being like Asiaticos and like so Asians and non-white. Even still, even when they were racially considered white, as we've talked about in the diaspora series, that didn't mean that they were extended any type of privilege that would have been given to European whites like Spanish, etc. In Cuba or anywhere else, they were still having to deal with constantly um, having to prove themselves as being loyal to Spain, right? And then later after the revolution, loyal to um, national Cuba. There's a record that shows that there's about 125,000 Chinese that were brought to Cuba um, as part of the coolie trade between 1847 and 1874. And about 92,000 that were taken to Peru from 1849 to 1874. So keep in mind, it is also taking place in different parts of Latin America. It's just that today I'm talking about these people largely taken to Cuba. There are, what do you call them? Um, Ship manifests that go into like the numbers of people, sort of like if you've been in my class, we look at the slate animated transatlantic maps. You it's like a great primary source, like animation that shows you like the name of a ship, how many people they left the African continent, went, how many people they arrived into the American, the Americas, right? So like North, Central, South Caribbean, whatever port city they were going into within the American hemisphere, the Western hemisphere. Um, they have the same thing for the Chinese who came into the port of Havana. So there's a record that was really cool. It says from 1847 to 1874, there's different percentages of people that die. It looks like the highest one is 19.3%, which is a high percentage of people, right? So in that case, there were 6,152 people who were departed. Um, China, somewhere in China, there were 1,184 deaths in transit. And of that, there were 400, excuse me, 4,968 that were sold in Havana. So keep in mind, like I mentioned before, we're, we're talking about people whose labor was technically being sold. They as people weren't being sold, which is why they were not legally considered slaves. But a lot of them have to deal with the same type of humiliations that enslaved people were. And keep in mind, between in these years that I just talked about, 1847 to to 1874 there's still the enslavement of african descended peoples within cuba as well so these coolie laborers are working alongside enslaved africans on the same plantations doing the same work even though one group is legally considered enslaved and one group is legally not considered slaves 
and they're also forced to live in the same establishment. So they are forced to live in like a barrack or they call it like a barracoon. And, you know, those barracoons were usually not ventilated. They had a lock from the outside. They didn't have any type of like sanitation area. People would be locked in at night. Of course, we're talking about being in the tropics. So it's both hot and humid in Cuba most of the time. And so these people, you know, weren't living in comfortable conditions. And oftentimes when it comes to the indentured coolie laborers, they are being charged for that room and board and that comes out of their monthly salary. So like I mentioned, when they tried bringing in European coolie labor, they would give those people nine pesos a month. Officially, they were paying coolies at times about four pesos a month. So that's like, I guess, less than half of what they would get, what they were would have given the European coolie laborers. And they have to deal with, you know, beatings. They have to deal with other types of torturous things. They could have their contract transmitted because, of course, legally speaking, they have to do whatever work the owner of their contract says. And even if that means they have to be transferred somewhere else that they don't want to go or to do work that they, you know, didn't necessarily think they were going to do at any given time. In fact, there were also Americans who would move to Cuba around the time of like the start of abolition in the United States in the South, they would move, oh, excuse me, and even after um, emancipation, so after 1865, because again, it went to Cuba. In Cuba, there was slavery for another like 20 years. So they would move from the United States to Cuba to start plantations so that they could own slaves and also own contracts of Asian indentured coolie laborers, which is really, really interesting. Like these people literally fled the country because they wanted to continue owning people. And just like with typical plantation life, like it had been for the enslaved Africans, the coolie laborers were the, from China were beaten, sometimes beaten to death. They also had to worry about um, being you know, increased violence and being pitted against the enslaved Africans. So sometimes you have cases where like a coolie laborer from China will get in trouble for something. And again, it doesn't mean that they've done anything wrong. Just like I talk about it in my slavery, my transatlantic slavery module, we have to uncouple the idea that people are punished when they did something wrong or that they're beaten if they did something wrong. That's not the case here. These people are being beaten, tortured, killed for no reason other than the person who has legal papers on them decides that that's what they want to do so the same thing was happening to the Chinese laborers they could be you know subject to this type of violence or death and there's nothing any of them can do about it they don't have any power in this hemisphere they don't have any real representation in this hemisphere to stop this from happening there are a lot of cultural barriers they phenotypically stand out right just like the enslaved Africans they phenotypically stood out as outsiders and the suspicion of their presence also because of a lot of the anti-Asian sentiment that we see brewing at this time with the importation of these people's labor and how life was made for them socially speaking. So those same things happen just like any other group who is dealing with in, um, with forced labor. And so you have cases where they would get in trouble. The African enslaved people would be forced to like beat them as opposed to the overseer beating them or like the white plantation owner beating them. Um, you also have cases where these people have to worry about 
oh gosh, I forgot the term in Spanish, but you know, some of the Chinese coolie laborers would be hired as overseers. Oh, they call them contramayorales. So those are low level overseers, but it's the same thing. Um, if you've studied the Holocaust, you probably learned about this too. If you've studied the transatlantic slave trade, you've learned about this. People from within the group, some of them are given higher ranks so that they can enforce violence. And it what it does is it creates distension among groups of people that have more in common than they don't. So by putting some of the people who are positioned as the laborers or the enslaved, whatever their classification is legally, by putting some of them in charge, giving them special treatment, you stop them from working together with people of their same language group, for example, of their same ethnic or cultural group, for example, because you may have people, you're going to have people, of course, just like with the enslaved Africans who are from different parts of China, right? So they may not ethnically be the same. They may have a beef that goes way back to before they were born, before they got to Cuba, but that's being realized in real time in their lives there. So they're not just all the same because they're Chinese or they're all from China. Just like people from different parts of Africa were not who were brought in as enslaved labor. They are not just all the same. There's no single racial consciousness. And I've talked about that before with regard to the um, transatlantic trade. There's no like people aren't looking at each other like, oh, well, we're all black legally, right? We all have dark skin. So we're all going to just work with each other. That didn't exist. And the same thing within continental Asia. People weren't just like, oh, we're all roughly the same color. So I guess we're all just going to work together. That didn't happen. And so the same things are not going to happen even when they are forced to be the labor behind these countries in the new world in the um, western hemisphere and it's also important to note that these people did also fight back so there were resistance movements on the on behalf of the chinese coolie laborers they would at times resort to homicide they would sabotage you know tools just like the enslaved africans would they would commit suicide there were different ways that they, you know, did rebellions about their mistreatment and about how they were being treated on these plantations. Because again, even when their indentured term was up, it could be renewed and there wasn't a whole lot they could do about it. Um, they often weren't given the chance to return home right away after their contract was up. So, you know, some of them don't know if they're ever going to get back home they don't know if their contract is going to be extended for any ridiculous reason. And because the people who own their contract are wealthy, they have the power to, you know, buy the court of public opinion and to sway the legal system to work on their behalf, not about what's really fair and just. So some of these coolie laborers did get the chance to go home. Some of them take advantage of different loopholes with regard to infighting and war to, you know, fight for a time for Spain or fight for the Cuban resistance um, for independence and get their freedom that way, be able to go home and um, have it paid for by the government. And a lot of these people just assimilated in. So they married, I mean, because Cuba is a nation, so it's a nationality, not a race. So they mixed in and married 
white Cubans, black Cubans, some of them married other Chinese Cubans, and they, you know, lived their lives. And when they would, some of them, when they would get out of their indenture term, especially as we get to a time period where they're not having to worry about it being renewed and there's nothing they can do about it anymore. Many of them start businesses. They start little, you know, cultural centers amongst themselves. They have import businesses where they, you know, do sort of like import services between the Asian continent and the American continent. So some of them travel to American port cities in the South to do business. They, you know, go to San Francisco to do business, to trade. They sometimes make voyages back to China just for a period of time and then come back. And so it's really interesting how, you know, there's a network that is created among these people. And like I mentioned, many of them fought for Cuban independence. So as we get like down the road of like the chronological timeline, a lot of them are revered for fighting against Spain and fighting for a free Cuba. But of course we know with the Platt Amendment that Cuba became a protector territory of the United States. So once again, we have more loopholes where these people's legality can be challenged. Some of it was being challenged at the time. The U.S. had anti-Chinese sentiment running rampant at the same time, like concurrently to when it was happening in Cuba. So it was a convenient way for them to take advantage of Chinese descended people within Cuba and not allow them to do things like vote or to buy land to make them prove their residency, even though, again, many of them didn't have easy access to papers because these things had happened like one or two generations before. The same thing that had happened to people who were freed in this country from slavery. Um, so it's a lot of the same structural issues. And as a historian, those similarities are very interesting to me because it just goes more to the point of explaining that it's a system. And so within that system, there is similar treatment of different continental groups of people or different regional groups of people that because they are non-white, they are inherently enslavable. Because they are non-white, they are seen as the bottom tiers of society. And so even though we're dealing with different phenotypic cultural groups of people, they very much have very similar treatment for how, well, similar ways of how they're treated by the national group. And especially when it comes to the whitening of Latin American countries in Cuba did this as well, or as they call it, bronchi, no, blanquiamento. In Portuguese, it's branquiamento because white is branca. But in Spanish, it's blanca. So it's blanquiamento. Um, and importing European laborers again, or excuse me, importing Europeans again and giving them land, giving them money, hoping that they'll whiten the populations of people. We know that not all of them did. Many of these European immigrants did not. So the same thing with Brazil, same thing in Latin American countries, um, in Cuba, you still have people who are very clearly mixed race, Right that are mixed with white and Asian, mixed indigenous Asian, black and Asian, and you know specifically Chinese in this case, I should say. But it's really, really interesting to look at sort of the themes that transcend the different racial categories and even comparing how that relates to what was going on in the United States at that same time, especially after the Platt Amendment in 1898 with Cuba becoming um, an extension of the United States. 
So if you were interested in looking up any Afro-Chinese people um, who are from Cuba, you could look up Antonio Chafat Latour. So Antonio is A-N-T-O-N-I-O. I'm I'm probably messing up the middle name, but it's um, C-H-U-F-F-A-T. And then the last name is L-A-T-O-U-R. And, you know, these people are documented. There are, you know businesses that were left for a lot of these people there are of course Chinese groups that were fighting for um, suffrage especially after the United States took over fighting for the right to you know keep aspects of their Chinese heritage fighting for legal representation some of them are fighting for you know mixed race representation as well and it's interesting how some of these people who were like um, black and Asian for example would fight in different causes at different times so sometimes they would fight for like the black liberation movements and equality and then they're also fighting in like the chinese spaces of equality right because we know that both of those groups were not considered equal to whites at that time so oftentimes these people were legally considered like people of color um and or like raza de color and um it's interesting. I'm like pausing because I'm like remembering some of the research that I had done, but not everybody, again, like depending on the year, some of these people who, even though they, they were mixed race, they may be denoted racially because of their phenotype, right? So of course, some of these people are going to look like they're full black or look like they're full Chinese or look like they're full white, even if they're like white and Chinese, for example. Um, so some of them are going to be marked based on their phenotype. Some of them are going to be marked based on their, um, like the lineage of their families. So it depends like who's doing the record keeping at what year. And I've talked about that in the diaspora series, but I know some of you, if you have listened to that, series um diaspora parts one through four the words mean things i was talking about like costa paintings right and like how a race as a cast was set up so this was this time period where coolie laborers are being used like from china is after that colonial time period in like the late 17th century early 18th century so the casts as we know them and as i've talked about them already existed so you don't necessarily have like the depictions of Chinese people within those types of paintings, within those legal racial categories, because of course there were people who had been trafficked through Manila, which is in the Philippines, <laughs> and people who had been trafficked um, from China through the Philippines and brought in like to the Pacific New World, so into Chile, Peru, Bolivia, but they were not in large numbers and they weren't always um noted so i don't want you to like conflate these two things i mean they're at different time periods but they still do matter because they're still racially categorized but again they're not necessarily going to be in the art now when it comes to the some of the justifications of the way that they're that these chinese descended laborers are treated a lot of it comes down to hygiene and I've talked about Zanyas before that we did a podcast about that. And basically Zanya was a, like a public water space that was generally associated with indigenous and Chinese folks within the new world. And they were just public waterways. So this is before people started getting plumbing in their individual homes. 
And one of the big reasons of justification for ending public waterways was that they were unsanitary. So what people used to do, and if you haven't listened to that episode, it's pretty good. But what people used to do is they used to go to like a public square and that's where they would like get the water that they would drink. They would pot it and take it back home. Or they would take their clothes and wash them in that public square and then, you know, take their clothes back home, take their laundry. And so these are meeting spaces of people who are all outside and working together and doing different things with water. But um, the Spanish crown at the time, especially even in Southern California, actually, but they eradicated the Zanias because they said, well, it's unsanitary. And actually, the L.A. Times has an article that I think I linked in the Zanya's description of that podcast episode. Pretty sure I did that. I don't know if I did it earlier this year or later last year, but they have an article that specifically cites that, you know, they were saying that they, right, the people who were trying to justify ending it were saying that, you know, the Chinese were being unhygienic and that we should end um, Zanya usage because they're taking advantage of it and they're bringing everyone disease. And I bring that up to say that the same justifications were used in Cuba against the Chinese population. So when it came to trying to break up their businesses or their meetings or just, you know, generally keep up the the discontent, they generally would say that Chinese people were unhygienic and were bringing diseases to Cuba. And I also bring that up because we saw the same thing happen with the response to COVID. So we saw that there were many people in our American politics who were talking about how it was like the China virus and, you know, these people eat these different foods and it's coming over here. And, you know, China was called by the immigration commissioner in Cuba at the time, the mother of plagues. And they said that the bubonic plague, it was imported directly from China and that it's the Chinese fault that we have this plague throughout the Americas in Peru, Chile, Mexico, San Francisco, and in Hawaii. And so it's a lot of the same types of blaming disease on Chinese folks. And so I, when I was reading about that, I was like, wow, it's so crazy how we think of ourselves as such an advanced society today in the 21st century and how we're not like, we think of ourselves as more scientifically advanced than we were 100 years ago, 200 years ago. But really, we're recycling the same talking points. We're recycling the same xenophobia. And we're recycling it against the same groups of people. So that's really, really crazy. And because, like I said, you have people who were Chinese who had mixed in with the black population, the white population, mixed race populations within Cuba. Those people are regarded as weak, like they are like genetically weak because of that mixing and that's the same thing that we saw the segregationists in the american south say about people who were mixing in with non-whites they were saying that they were like syphilitic um wow gosh i read something once i was saying that they were syphilitic um mulattoes right that these people are like destined to have all these diseases and they said the same thing about people who mixed in with Chinese but they were using um tuberculosis instead of like syphilis they were saying that they're just tuberculosis ridden and like they are genetically inferior and we're ruining the country in this case Cuba we're ruining the country by allowing these people to come in and spread this uh tuberculosis weakness amongst our other racial populations of people Now, again, they recognize that many of these people who had been there for at this time 
for very long periods of time, had fought for the War of Independence, were registered as um, service members, had fought valiantly and were regarded, but they still maintain that sort of like racial hierarchy um, of othering them and of making people feel like they are non-equal, even though they are all nationally the same people. And it's also important to mention, just like I was talking before in the diaspora series, parts one through four, that these are Latinx folks at this point. So they're Chinese Latinx, they're Asian Latinos and Latinas and Latinx folks. So they were also having to navigate, you know, living in a country where they speak the language, have created hybrid cross-culturations, have given, have adopted Spanish names, you know, have children who are mixed in with these national and ethnic group of people and yet they're still marked as outsiders much in the same way like afro latinx folks deal with or um, indigenous latinx folks same thing so it's really just great to like broaden our horizons for again thinking about how this relates to the descendants of these people who are still in cuba in this case since that's what i was talking about but they're still in brazil they're still in peru they're still in chile they're still in Jamaica, they are still in these countries. Like I mentioned, the English also use coolie labor. The Americans use coolie laborers. So these are people who came from India, people who came from China, and they are nationally still in these countries, many of them. And I think that's really cool because it just shows us again how intercontinental trade even when it's controversial contributes a lot to the society that we have modern day with how we assign diseases to certain groups of people or we blame certain groups of people for transporting disease how even though of course like the record of europeans bringing over diseases to the natives is much 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 worse and very well documented we know that they are projecting that onto largely chinese groups of people we know that they are projecting the worst parts of their own criminality and brutality onto the African descended groups of people so that they don't have to deal with it within themselves for being, you know, terroristic or for spreading disease. They're just ascribing it to different groups of people. So um, if you're interested more in this topic, you could read the autobiography, uh, excuse me, the biography of a runaway slave that is narrated by Esteban Montejo. So he was an enslaved black person within Cuba. He lived on a plantation where there were Chinese laborers. So of course they were coolie laborers at the time. That's a great book. It has different editors at times because it's translated from Spanish because he was an Afro-Latino from um, Cuba. So he was talking about his life and then it was translated. So sometimes there's different versions of the translations, but it is a really good book. Another really great book is Chinese Cubans by Kathleen Lopez. And that book, I'm not sure when Esteban Montejo's book came. I think Esteban Montejo's book must have been in the 1870s, maybe the 1880s, but um. I have to check on that. But Chinese Cubans came out in 2013. So it's a 10 year old book, but it is available um, for you to read. It's really good. It's from UNC Press. And like I said, most of the time you can look up um, manifests for these ships. I'm not sure if the Chinese Historical Society 
oh, excuse me, the Chinese Historical Museum in San Diego has any records about this, I could ask. That'd be a pretty good question to email them and ask. But there are a lot of online resources also. Um, when I was in Havana, I did not get to see the Chinatown that's there, but there is one. So if you're traveling to Cuba anytime soon, you can always look into that. I'm not sure how they navigate their archives as far as universities there and everything else, but that would be also be something cool to look into. But a lot of these things would be digitized and available, especially in California. So I hope you learned something cool. I hope that you will take this as a starting point to do other research as always. And, you know, thank you for listening to another episode. Um, I really, really appreciate you listening. I appreciate all of you so, so much. So I will see you on the next episode. Bye.